We've spoken about cross-racial solidarity a few times on this podcast, just a few, but never (laughs) with quite the beautifully illustrative stories and historical references and personally motivating oomph, right, that we did today. And I also think it's important to note that this conversation that you're about to hear is one that happened between the three of us, all identifying as Asian and American, about topics that involve not only our shared Japanese American and Asian American history, but also included a focus on how we collectively, much broader than our own individual identities, combat white supremacy. I mean, those are heavy loaded words that you just shared. And I love that we're saying it so clearly because we got to speak today with David Murrah, author of The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, which is totally a zinger of a title. And especially after having this conversation, being able to hear how clearly he articulates and shares these very strong stories and perspectives that are correct, in my view. If you have any desire to make any change in this country whatsoever, you'll want to commit to listening to this conversation in its entirety. We absolutely loved it. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that models and normalizes conversations about race and racism so that we can help more white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. All right. Well, will you please introduce yourself for our listeners? I'm David Murrah. I'm a writer and I'm speaking about my recent book, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself racial myths in our American narratives. A zinger of a title. Right? I know. Thank you. Because we're in the middle of Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And you mentioned in the opening of your book that you are a third generation Japanese American. And before we dive into other parts of this conversation, I'd love to spend some time understanding your lens. Because between the historical overlay of the incarceration camps where Japanese Americans were held captive on our own American soil to, as you share in your opening of the book you just mentioned, basically spending time living in a predominantly white neighborhood and just, quote, waiting to be white. So I think it's worth taking a moment to explore where you're coming to this conversation from. Yes. So I'm a sansei, which is a term for a third generation Japanese American. My first grandfather came here in 1898. So we've been in America for a century and a quarter. People still sometimes assume I'm an immigrant. My parents at ages 11, 15, and their families and 120,000 Japanese Americans were imprisoned by the United States government in concentration camps in desolate areas of the West, Southwest, and South during World War II. They were suspected of fifth column activity and being spies but no Japanese-American was ever convicted of any sort of espionage. And in the 1980s, a legal researcher discovered that the military had actually done a study which determined that the community was not a military threat. But they lied to the American public, and then the Solicitor General, when he was arguing cases like Korematsu, cases challenging the internment, lied and did not mention that there was this survey. My parents reacted to their imprisonment, I think both consciously and unconsciously, uh, by thinking, it must be my race and ethnicity, which is my crime. Because obviously at 1115, they had never done anything, and no Japanese-American ever did. And they did not do the same thing to the Italian-Americans, even though we were fighting Italy. They didn't do the same thing to German-Americans, even though we were fighting Germany. And so they 
raise me to assimilate into white middle-class values. They didn't talk much about Japanese culture, and like many in their generation, they didn't talk to us children about the internment camps. Like a Japanese name would come up in family conversations and somebody would go, what camp were they in? And somebody would say Heart Mountain or Topaz, and then the conversation would, would go on. And nobody of my parents' generation ever sat us down and said, you know, during World War II, we were all taken from our homes, given two weeks to assemble at the assembly centers and taken to these prisons and kept behind barbed wire fences with rifle towers where the guards had their rifles pointed inwards. I had a friend who thought they were summer camps until she was in her late teens. So when I was in high school, when I went to a mainly Jewish high school in the suburb of Chicago, and a white friend said to me, I think of you, David, like a white person, I would go, that's what I want to be. You know, that's what I want to be considered. And I went through English graduate school and studied the Anglo-American canon, which was all white literature at the time. So I read no writers of color. But afterwards, in my late 20s, I began reading black authors. And I suddenly realized, oh, David, you're not white. You're never going to be white. Who the hell are you? And I realized that none of the white writers I had read had given me a language to talk about race. But when I was reading authors like Baldwin or Toni Morrison, I suddenly understood, yeah, there's this language to talk about the racial issues of America, and I can learn from these authors. And so in many ways, you know, this book that I've written, The Story's Whiteness Tells Itself, is a result of, you know, from my 20s on, really thinking about the issues of race, racial identity, both in regards to my own community and my own life and identity, but also in regards to other communities, other experiences, other narratives. I'm so excited to continue diving into this conversation. Thank you for sharing so much of your history and your lens. And just to share our take, you know, Misasha and I are both daughters of a Japanese immigrant parent each. And we recently just dropped an episode actually on being biracial in America. But I would say, you know, for us, so much of our, I'm going to air quote, sort of culture comes directly from the way our parents grew up in Japan. And so for us, I think it's safe to say that things like the foods we ate for dinner or celebrations like Japanese Girls Day with kimonos and dolls or or Boys Day for flying the koinobori, you know, other customs like taking your shoes off in your house, um, even just this idea of like keeping your head down and working hard. I think all of that was really directly from our parents. And yet for you as a third generation, I'd imagine for lack of a better term, like you were saying, it's sort of a dilution of those traditions, especially with parents who are, are raising you to fit into a, a white culture. And especially, you know, from what Misasha has always shared with us and what she saw and heard from Japanese Americans who are Sansei or Yonsei because she grew up in Los Angeles. And so my question from this is to say, you know, human beings, and, and there's this whole rich body of research that show that human beings really need to feel like they belong in order to feel like they thrive. How would you say people several generations removed from immigration relate to their country of sort of historical descent versus belonging in America, especially if they're not white? It's interesting because I really thought of myself as thoroughly American growing up. And one of the reasons why, you know, I feel I can write about white identity is because I studied white identity. That's what I wanted to be. I identified with white heroes in the movies, in books, and in the culture. But as I've gotten older and older, I've realized, like, there are Japanese cultural values inside me, right? I mean, even though I'm an author, and I've certainly had my share of controversies, that idea of the Japanese saying, the nail that sticks up gets hit in the head, you know? Shogun-ai, it can't be helped, just endure, gaman, endure, right? 
And nobody ever labeled those values as Japanese values, just like we took our shoes off at, at the house. But nobody said we do that because we're Japanese. I just thought we did that because my mother was a cleanliness freak. So, you know, I feel the older I get, I realize, like, there's part of me that is bicultural. But the other part, you know, and I talk about this in Asian American identity, where part of the issue of being Asian American is cultural. Like, and of course, if you're a recent immigrant, you're burying your culture from Japan or China or Vietnam or the Philippines or, you know, Mumbai, right? But it's also about race. And it's about being raced in American society and how people regard you, how people treat you because of the way you look. But it's not only that. It's also how you regard yourself because of the way you look. And what values you've internalized about what bodies like you mean in American society. And I would say that I feel, and I think it's a constant for Asian American life, that we are never quite part of America. During the pandemic, there was a 150% rise in Asian American hate crimes. And that happened. It didn't just happen to people from, you know, whose ancestry traces back to China. It happened to Filipino Americans, it happened to Vietnamese Americans, it happened to Thai Americans. So anytime there's trouble in Asia, in East Asia, it's going to affect all East Asians and the way they're treated in America. And of course, obviously, the imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II is a prime example of this. So I never feel like I'm really considered part of America. And but I always feel feel like, and there's, you know, I feel an anger and certain bitterness about this, but I also feel there's an advantage because I never assume that my experience is central. I never assume that people will think my experience is significant. And what that allows, I think, is a certain both humility and openness to considering the perspectives of other people. And again, that's why I ended up writing the book, which is essentially about the way of white America tells its history and narrates its own stories and contrasts that with the way African-Americans tell their history and tell their fictional narratives. And examining then what that says about what America has been and what it is in the present. Um, I appreciate your answer on so many levels. I love the way you frame that, especially when you were talking about how you don't assume that your story is sort of that central story, because I do think it brings so much to the table, but also empathy on a level that I think if your story has always been centered, you never have to really address that. And so I, I want to get further into your book, right? Because in your book, The Story's Whiteness Tells Itself, you really lay out a lot of the racial myths and the American narratives that swirl around whiteness. And I want to start with the essay that you wrote around Amistad, because that really stood out for me for a couple of reasons. And, you know, and I want to talk about how you wrote about, you know, the novelization of the movie, which was written by your friend, the Black novelist. It's Please. Alex. 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 Pate. Okay. Pate versus the movie, which was directed by Steven Spielberg, who is the white Jewish adoptive parent of two Black children. And in that essay, I felt like it really highlighted the importance of who is telling the story and how perspective is, as you were talking about, is not only is crucial, but is imperative if we want to stop centering whiteness in our histories, in our stories, in our media and more. And in my family, which is Black 
Japanese and white, the lens really matters, right? I know that personally, but I don't hear this being discussed a lot, especially in white circles. And I feel like for obvious reasons. So can you tell us more about your analysis here and why lens, the lens and the perspective matters so much? Well, let me start before I get into Amistad with just this common practice that white writers do. So if I'm writing a short story and I say, Bill and Bridget were arguing in their kitchen on the Upper West Side. It was a fall morning. They were Their window looked down on Broadway. And they go on. We're to assume that Bill and Bridget are white, right? Absent any sort of other racial or ethnic markers, they're white. Now, what this means is whiteness is considered the universal default. Everything else is the exception. But it also means that the author is unconsciously saying Bill and Bridget being white is not important to their identity. It's not important to their life experience. To which a reader of color would go, well, no, I see Bill and Bridget as white. And I think if they white people living on the Upper West Side of New York, their being white probably has shaped their experience. Now, if I'm writing the story and I'm going, Tom and Terry were arguing in their kitchen in Las Vegas. Their kitchen window looked out over the golf course. It was a searing summer day. And I go on. I can't go on. Because at some point, I have to indicate that Tom and Terry are second-generation Japanese-Americans. They were imprisoned by the United States government as children, and that shaped their sense of who they are. And I assume that their racial identity is important. Their ethnic identity is important. So when the white writer doesn't note the whiteness, and Toni Morrison has said, until very recently, white American authors always assumed their audience was white, right? But the position is actually much more like a conservative position. Bill and Bridget don't really have a white identity. Their being white is not really important because race is not important. Again, that's not a position I can take as a writer of color. So now let's go to the movie Amistad. And I believe, you know, obviously Spielberg believes in equality. He's, He's a leftist. He's a progressive. And I'm sure he wanted to tell the story about Amistad in order to promote racial equality. But the movie starts... And the Africans are in chains in the hold of this ship, and there's no subtitles. Now, Spielberg could easily have put subtitles, right? So we don't understand what they're saying. They're indecipherable. And their first act after they free themselves from their chains is to kill the Spanish sailors and take over the ship. Now, we don't actually know. Could These could be prisoners, right? And their first act is an act of violence against white people. Now, my friend Alex Page, who's a novelist, was commissioned by DreamWorks to write the novelization. And if you remember, that whole movie was told mainly through the viewpoint of Matthew McConaughey playing the young white lawyer who's trying to enlist John Quincy Adams to help him in the case of the question of whether the Africans are free men or slaves. And Alex looked at the perspective, this narrative perspective, and he looked at this opening scene, and he went, ah. I can't start the novel here. So he starts the novel in Africa. And Sinke, the leader of the slaves, he's sleeping beside his wife and child. He has a family. He has a village. And we're inside Sinke's head. He's not indecipherable, right? His consciousness, his think, his thoughts and feelings, are. and he has a family. He has a village. He has a language. He's very uneasy. He goes out in the night and walks around, and it turns out a lion is attacking the village, and he kills the lion and saves the village. So his first act of violence is saving his own people. But the other thing about this is 
when Sinke is in Africa with his wife and children and his people, his blackness has no meaning. You know, Du Bois in his famous essay, The Souls of Black Folks, asks about the condition of African-Americans, and he says, what does it mean to be a problem? Well, in Africa, Sinke's blackness is not a problem, and he does not have to go to white people to ask whether he's a free man or a slave. So Sinke actually, you know, my friend Alex starts the novel outside of the white categories of whiteness and blackness, outside of the judgment of white people, outside of the necessity for the judgment of white people. And of course, he's the whole, if you tell the novel from Sinke's point of view, it becomes a very different story than if you tell it through the young white lawyer's point of view. And so you have the same script because Alex had to use every single word of the script in the novelization, but there, one is an African-American novel and one, as David Geffen, Spielberg's colleague said, is a white savior movie. Boom. I love how you described it. And thank you very much for painting that picture for us. You know, I want to interject a little bit on this notion of slavery then, because I know we hear sometimes, well, you know, slavery, that was a economic issue. That's why we imprison so many black people to make, you know, the cotton more profitable for the white folks who own the plantations. But one thing that stood out for me, it was a, a part of your book that you said there was a study that David Eltis did that claimed that it would have actually been cheaper to have had white European slaves instead of black African slaves. And that yes. I had not heard that. Can we talk about that a little bit more? Because that really indicates to me it wasn't only economic. It was very much racially motivated in terms of a choice of who they had slaves. And if they had had white slaves, what that would have done is it would have taken away the power of whiteness to define the social group, to create social cohesion, to create social power through being white. And we know the first sort of official categorization, official sort of pronouncement of what it meant to be white in America and black in America took place after the 1676 Bacon's Rebellion, which was the first white working class rebellion in America. And the white elites went, oh, Jesus, these white working class people are revolting. What are we going to do? OK, we'll offer them the category of being white. I mean, we won't let them rise economically, but they'll be white. And they can revel in that and they're superior over black people. Now, the other thing we say about American history is like, you know, I mean, Ron DeSantis is, is, you know, and all these people say we cannot teach about race in America, right? And part of their argument was, well, it was so long ago. Let's not think about it. So, you know, but we don't want to wrestle with it. It's like if I told you there was this man who wrote a Declaration of Independence, helped form the Constitution, was a brilliant writer, was an inventor, a thinker an architect, you would go, that's a person to admire. But then I said, this person held 600 people in chattel slavery. This person impregnated a 16-year-old girl, Sally Hemings, who had no right to refuse him. This person had, and Sally Hemings was a quarter white. So her children, their children were a quarter, were one-eighth white. And people would say about them, they sure look like you, Tom. He kept his own children as slaves. He kept the mother of his children as a slave even after he died. Now, if some, this is going down the block, you would go, this person is a monster. They must be psychotic. They must be in prison. And we don't want to wrestle with the fact that somebody so brilliant, right, somebody so knowledgeable and so eloquent could get things so wrong. 
And if we lower the moral bar in the past, we lower the moral bar in the present. And if we don't examine the racism in the past, we can't understand how the racism of the present is created. Now, let me go back to that idea. It's the 1700s. It's the early 1800s. What does it have to do with America today? Now, we know that black patients are half as likely to receive paid medication as white patients for the same conditions. And if they receive pain medication, they receive less pain medication than white patients for the same condition. And there are all these statistics about the way black and white patients are treated, which, which prove this. Now, in Linda Villarosa, this author, wrote a book called Under the Skin last year, which examines racial disparities in the healthcare system. And she cites a study, a 2016 study of 222 white medical students. Half of these 222 to white medical students profess some sort of belief that black people feel less physical pain than white people, often because they have this erroneous belief that black people have thicker skin than white people. And we can speak about the uh, metaphoric implications of that. But let's go back to Jefferson. Jefferson was a leading ideologist and proponent of slavery and white supremacy of his time. He wrote about how white people were intellectually superior to black people, morally superior, spiritually superior. And he said one justification for slavery was that black people feel less physical pain than white people. So this idea that Jefferson is writing in the 1700s is infecting half of these 222 white medical students in 2016. So you can't tell me that the past is in the past. It's here in the present. And it's affecting racial disparities in the healthcare system in 2023. Hi, it's Sarah. Are you looking for another podcast that explores deeply personal conversations about race, identity, and culture? Then I highly recommend listening to one of our favorite podcasts, 10,000 Things, produced by our friends at KUOW, Seattle's NPR station. If you're a fan of This American Life, then consider 10,000 Things the equivalent of this Asian American life, as it's a sound-rich celebration of Asian America. Each episode, host and award-winning poet Shin Yi Pai sits down with Asian Americans to explore objects that hold value in their lives and tell something about their story. The new season just launched, and its first episode is a can't-miss conversation with poet and educator Ebo Barton, who explores the power of names and their identity as a Black, Filipino, transgender, and non-binary individual. And later in the season, they'll have acclaimed activist Alice Wong on amplifying the voices of disabled people and dismantling systemic ableism. Needless to say, this season features an amazing combination of guests and stories, ranging from an artist with their paper resume to a conservationist with their steelhead trout. So go ahead. Follow 10,000 Things on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast app. Tell them we sent you. That is so important because I, I think that that is something that we hear so much, right? That this is in the past. Why are we addressing this now? And I'm a big fan of the through lines, right? Like that we have this here and it gets us here, right? And you can see the connection. And I was having a conversation with my fifth grader about Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> this exact issue on like a fifth grade understanding level, because I, I definitely think he's the kid in school who's raising his hand and being like, I don't agree with that. But, you know, I, I want to talk about because you mentioned DeSantis and, you know, this whole concept of like, we don't want to teach about uncomfortable things. And I think there's another layer to this too that's not only we don't want to teach about uncomfortable things but we're going to teach about history right in a way that is comfortable and sort of creates this white savior 
upholds the white savior ideal, right? And and Sarah and I just recorded an episode on how we need more stories of white resistance. And that has sort of been left out of schooling education as far as I can see. And I say this all because I'm the, also the granddaughter of a Civil War historian. So I grew up with the concept of Abraham Lincoln, right, as a great American and as a racist as well. And I was really excited that you had an essay about this because this wasn't what I was being taught at school. There was one thing that I was being taught at school, and that was that Abraham Lincoln was a great American. But I think that the and here is so important, right, that you can be multiple things at once. So how do you see, especially in the light of people saying like, well, this is a long time ago, or this is too difficult, or this is too painful for our children to learn, how do you see the and being taught in schools, in universities, in discussions going forward? Well, you know, let me start instead with the, and I'll get to there, but, uh, you know, Moms for Liberty, this conservative white group who wants to ban books like the story of Ruby Bridges. Now, Ruby Bridges was a six-year-old black girl who in 1960 desegregated a New Orleans school. And she entered, entered the school through a crowd of angry, shouting, insulting, spitting white people. And Moms for Liberty says, oh, our children are too fragile. They will need to feel bad about this. Now, how you know this is racist is because my children read the book. They're half white, half Japanese American. They were inspired by Ruby Bridges. They were inspired by her courage. They were inspired at the thought of fighting against for racial equality and racial justice. And so either these white moms for liberty don't think or don't want their children to be inspired by a six-year-old black girl and her story, or they're afraid of their white children being inspired by this 16-year-old black girl. And the other thing is, if they were so worried about the fragility of children, they would be worried about the fact that every single African-American parent must tell their children stories of police brutality and police murder in order to prepare them to deal with what happens if they encounter the police. And so if they really cared about the fragility of children, they would also be protesting the fact that Black children must hear these narratives in order to survive, and that white Black parents must tell these narratives to their children. Now, we don't want to talk about Lincoln. Lincoln, at a certain point during his ministry, he invited these Black ministers to the White House. And he told them, the least white man is greater than the best Black man. You will never be equal with us. And you will never be part of America. And if you are freed, you should try to find a place elsewhere. Now, people say, but you have to judge Lincoln by the context of his times, by the moral climate of his times. Well, 20 years earlier, Dickens went to America, and after one trip, he realized slavery is a, mo is a moral monstrosity. It's depraved. Dickens was of Lincoln's time. But the other thing, when we say, let's think about the moral climate of Lincoln's time. He was advanced for his time. What about those black ministers? They all believed in racial equality. They all believed they were equal. Why aren't they part of the moral climate of Lincoln's time? Why isn't their judgment of Lincoln relevant? And what we're really saying then is, yeah, the moral climate of Lincoln's time is only defined by white people. Those black ministers are not part of America. But we're doing that not in 1863. We're doing it in the present. 
right? And the other thing about this, which which is, you know, my book, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, I say that white knowledge is always considered uh, valid, objective, true, and official. And black knowledge is always invalid, subjective, false or suspicious, or unofficial, unless white people decree it's official. And yet, so white knowledge is always supposed to be superior. But at every single point in American history, the majority of white people were wrong about the questions of race, about slavery, about Jim Crow, about the civil rights laws, about the treatment of police, of black citizens. And yet, so white people were always wrong, black people were always right in our racial history, but white America never turns to black America and says, you know, we've got her wrong every single time in our history, and you were on the right side of history. Maybe we should listen to you in the present. White America can't do that. That's why there can be no contemporary equivalent of Martin Luther King. There can be no contemporary equivalent of Sojourner Truth. All those black heroes about race have to be in the past. There can be no equivalent of a black person being so right in the present. Excellent. I absolutely love how you said that. And I feel like we're moving into this part of the conversation that has to do with more of this action, right? It's not just white people listening to perspectives or passively ignoring race, but you're saying not just listen to Black people and people of color and say, you're correct, but really starting to do more. And I think at the end of your book in Abandoning Whiteness, you say this, you say, for an individual white person to undergo a true change about race, there are three main tasks, one involving knowledge and social interactions, one involving a spiritual journey, and one involving a political commitment. And so on our show, we're all about leaning into the action part as well. So can you talk a little bit more about these tasks that you're challenging white people to take up? Yeah. And I want to preface this by saying, you know, I didn't write this book to shame and guilt white people. I don't believe that you change people through shame and guilt. You change people through love and knowledge. And I also want to say that none of this is perfect on the subject of race. Nobody can claim to know everything about every single racial and ethnic group in America. We all have pockets of ignorance. And if we talk, then we're going to step in it sometime. And we all have things we don't know we don't know. So the first thing you have to do is have this a sense of humility. Like, there may be things I don't know I don't know, you know, and so you must be willing to learn, and you can't learn unless you're humble, right? And so one of the ways that you can begin to change it is just simply knowing more, you know, reading books, going to, you know, seeing different art, different, going to different cultural events. But also, if you live a life where it's entirely among your own group, then in order to change, you need to begin interacting with people of different races and different ethnicities. And so you have to figure out, why is my life structured like this? How am I consciously structuring my life like this? And how am I unconsciously structuring my life? And what can I do to change this? You know, do you attend different events, join a different church? As we know, as said, the most segregated hour in America on sun is on Sunday, you know, during the hour of church. So you can do this consciously and begin to make these changes, both in your knowledge and your social life. And then there's a change in identity. And Baldwin says the question of identity is a question in inducing the most profound panic. The terror is primary, is the nightmare of the mortal fall. And what he means is like it's as scary as confronting death. Now, it's very interesting because Helen Kubler-Ross wrote a book on death and dying. And she says, we go through psychological stages dealing with death. And she denotes these five stages as first denial, 
anger, bargaining, grief, and acceptance. So the way this works in race is there's no racism. You know, there's no racism in American society. The DeSantis administration has defined woke as being belief that there's any systemic injustice in American society. So there's no systemic injustice. Then it's anger. Why are you bringing this up? We had a perfectly fine campus or school until you started bringing up these racial issues. Everybody in this business got along until you started bringing up these issues of microaggression and anti-racism. We were fine with the police until you began protesting about this, right? We were a peaceful community. And then it's bargaining. Okay, there may be racism, but isn't it only a few bad apples? Now, Chris Rock has said, <laughs> remarked, would you want to fly in an airline that had a few bad apples as pilots? Would you want to be operated on a by a surgery department that had a few bad apples? Of course not. But racism is systemic in America. You don't get these huge racial disparities without a system. And I, you know, we can talk about this in a second. But, and then it's grief. And sometimes it's like grief, like I'm, you know, which is understandable. I'm so sad people of color have had to go through this. But sometimes it's like, I feel so bad about being a white person. You know, I'm a good person. And this is an understandable human reaction. But, you know, whether you're a good person or not, that's not the question here, right? And if you beat yourself up, it doesn't help anybody, right? You can feel sad for the pain that racism caused in America and still causes. But you're also feeling pain because you're losing your innocence, right? But, you know, as the psychologist um, Thomas More said, the, the idea of being an adult is not to be innocent, but understanding that life involves guilt and you live with it and you become responsible. And so finally you reach the last stage, which is acceptance. And you end psychological denial and you end spending so much energy just trying to block out the realities and the truth of American history and American present. And if you do that, a calmness comes over you and the shame and guilt actually begin to leave, right? And you just accept, okay, there's this problem. We're all involved in this problem. What are we going to do? And then that becomes a third stage where you begin to try to change things around you, right? In the business or school that you know, you're involved with in your community. And there's so many ways you can do this. There's no one prescribed way of doing it. But once you begin involved in activism, begin speaking out, you know, you will know you're working because, frankly, white people will begin to be angry at you. You know you're making progress because some of the white people around you will say, you know, you used to be such a good person and now you're causing all this trouble, right? And this is also true for people of color. I went through a period where Miss Saigon, back in the early 90s, Asian Americans around the country protested it, both for its ridiculous portrayal of the Vietnamese and its Orientalism, but also at the time because they were having a white actor in yellowface. And all my white artist friends, none of them understood that. And I wrote an article about arguing with them, and they wrote back to me and said, David, have you become a racial separatist? <laughs> and... I lost almost all those white friends, right? Now, what I realized is at the time I was speaking that I, the same things I was saying that were angering my white friends, I would go to a college campus and I would say the same things. And not only the Asian American students, but the African American students, the Latino American students, the Native American students would come up and go, I'm so glad you said these things. Then I realized, like, you know, I had to stick with the truth no matter what the cost was. And in actuality, in the end, it made me just stronger. And oftentimes what I say to younger people of color is 
you have to make whiteness smaller inside your heads. You cannot give power to people who judge you but don't see you. You cannot give power to judgments of people who do not see you. Now, of course, you have to deal with it in various different ways. Obviously, if you're stopped by the police and the cop is racist, you still have to deal with it, and you have to deal with it in a smart way. But you don't give power to those judgments. You know, I teach creative writing, and so many writers of color think like, you know, well, what is a white audience going to think of my writing? And I just go, like, don't worry about it. Write your story first. Don't even think about it, you know? Don't even think about these judgments of people who don't understand your, or don't want to understand your experience, because you're not writing for them, just as Toni Morrison is not writing for a, a white audience. As she says, you know, I'm, she's fine with white people reading her work, but she says, I'm writing my work for Black people. I appreciate so much of that. And I loved what you said about the advice that you give to writers of color about making white supremacy smaller. And I want to tie that together with what you said about how people change with love and knowledge, because I think another way that we have heard that people change is through being vulnerable with each other, right? And so I kind of want to take us back also to where we started this conversation, because in that last essay, Abandoning Whiteness, you say, I know once upon a time I thought myself white, and then I learned I wasn't. And I think this is something that we've heard from others in our Asian community, conscious or unconscious white adjacency that has kept Asians sometimes separate from other groups, marginalized groups in this country. And at the same time, when we fight against white supremacy together, we are all strengthened. So personally, in my family, Black Asian solidarity is something that is so important, speaking for my Black sons who have Japanese first names, right? They sort of embody it. So I would love to ask you your thoughts on how do we build this cross-racial solidarity, right? What is your take on this? I think you simply, well, it's not simple, but you begin to learn more about other people. And I understood, you know, once I discovered I wasn't white, I understood that I couldn't make sense of America just understanding the Japanese-American story or the Asian-American story. I had to understand the story of African-Americans, of Latino-Americans, of Native Americans, right? And, and that there are connections. I mean, obviously, when... September 11th happened, the Japanese American Citizens League was among the first organizations to defend Muslim and Arab Americans, because we understood that this, you know, the suspicion that was cast upon us was now similarly cast upon Muslim and Arab Americans. Um, we have to redefine America. We, we've so defined America as, as white America, but that's not true of our history. It's not true of what America has been. It's certainly not true of American culture. You can't imagine American culture or American music, African-American music. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And we have to understand, you know, I just did a, a documentary of the Japanese-American soldiers who were in the military intelligence during World War II. And they were trained as translators, actually, in Minnesota. And the reason why they were trained in Minnesota is because they couldn't be on the West Coast because of the evacuation order. And when the head of the school wrote the Western states, they would say things like, if you bring the Japs to our state, you'll find them hanging in the trees. And the only place that accepted them was Minnesota, where the governor said, there's room here and room in people's hearts. Now, these men and women, some of them women, they went out and served as battlefield guides, as interrogators as translators of captured documents and messages. 
The work led to the downing of Admiral Yamamoto's plane, who was the architect of the Pearl Harbor attack. And MacArthur's chief of intelligence that these Japanese Americans shortened the war in the Pacific by two years and saved a million American lives. So there are anti-immigrant, anti-Asian white people walking around today who may have been alive simply because these Japanese American soldiers shortened the war and saved the lives of their white fathers or grandfathers. And it's a great example of diversity because America had white German speakers. They had white Italian speakers. And they realized, like, we don't have any white Japanese speakers. What the hell are we going to do? And they had to go to the internment camps where these people were imprisoned with their family and say, will you help us? And it was a terrific asset, and it was also a terrific asset in the pacification of Japan, because the Japanese thought, oh, the Americans are going to come and kill and torture us. And then you have these Japanese-Americans speaking to them in Japanese, saying, no, that's not going to happen. And the Japanese reaction was, America must be a really great country to have all these Japanese-Americans, you know, serving in their military. So diversity is a strength of America, you know, and people don't recognize this, Right. I mean, they don't recognize, like, part of our success in World War II is because of this. Part of the dynamism of American culture and society and its creativity comes from this. So why would you want to reject it? Your life will be much more interesting if you allow these other narratives into your lives, if you allow these other stories, if you identify with these other people. You know, and of course, we're supposed to be a Christian country and we treat everybody as brothers, but that runs contrary to our whole history. But you will be a better spiritual person if you begin to do this, too. I appreciate that. And I feel like we've covered so much ground today. Is there anything else that we haven't asked that you think is really important for our listeners to hear? Yes. One of the ways that we've defined racism is it's not only that you have to be actively discriminate or make acts of hate, but you also have to say, like, I did it because I'm a racist. I did this because I'm prejudiced against black people. And as David Blight, this great historian of Reconstruction, has said, hypocrisy is a tool of racism. So you can have racist intent, and as long as you never say, I did this because of racism, you know, it's okay, right? Now, this is not a definition which people of color would assent to, because we've created a definition where there is no racism in America. Nobody will admit to any racist intent, even KKK people will. So what we understand now is that there is explicit racism where it's conscious and people have discriminatory beliefs and actions. And generally what happens is they make these actions, but they never talk about their racist intent other than private among people that share their beliefs. But we also understand there's unconscious racism, right? Implicit race bias. And you can profess to believe in equality, but actually your actions show racial bias. And, you know, there's a Harvard test that you can, psychological test you can take online. And among those things are people are shown a picture of a child with an object in their hand. And a lot of white people tend to see that object as a gun in a black child's hand than in a white child's hand. And even some black people do this, right? And so you can profess to believe in equality and still act with racial bias. So we don't understand the complexity. You know, when you say like the Black people wait longer for pain medication and receive less. What is it? It's the black patient saying, I feel pain. And it's the white person going, no, I don't think you feel pain. Now, some of them, like these white medical students, may do it because they believe that black people feel less physical pain than white people. Or they're suspicious of black narrative. Whereas a white patient comes in, they're trustful. 
Now, if you ask these people in the medical field, I don't think any of them, most of them would say, like, I believe white people are superior, right? But in practice, that's the way they act. And then if you add into all this, all the historical things like the fact that black people were not able to get loans, they were built by banks and loaners and economically deprived, you know, the pollution in, in areas where people of color live, all of these things, it's a system. Black people, uh, white people smoke marijuana at exactly the same right, but black people are 3.64 times more likely to be arrested. And when they're arrested, they're more likely to go to trial. When they're in trial, they're more likely to be convicted. When they're convicted, they're more likely to go to prison, and they're more, more likely to send longer sentences for the exact same crime. You can't explain anything like that without saying it's a system. And it's a system, I know this is a long answer, but there was a, a case before the Supreme Court where prosecutors applied the death penalty when a black person killed a white person 70% of the time. When a white person killed a black person, they applied the death penalty 19% of the time. But the Supreme Court ruled this was insufficient evidence of racial bias. They would only accept this as evidence of racial bias if the prosecutor said, we all did this because we're racist. Well, that doesn't happen. And this, the ruling is very telling because it says, like, if we accepted this, we'd have to look at the whole justice system. And essentially, we can't look at the justice system for racial bias. So it, it's like this blinder, like we won't, but it all stems from this definition of racism, where it's only if somebody avows racism. And again, that's not a definition that most people of color would assent to. It's a definition created by white people for white people for the benefit of white supremacy. Thank you so much for that. I think that's absolutely right. And I'm glad that we added that into this episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to connect with us and share all these thoughts. It was so cool to hear your perspectives. I really appreciate it. So thank you for having me. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>